Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the final episode in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Twelve weeks ago when the podcast started, we spoke to iFi programmers David O'Mahony and Kevin Coyne about their viewing recommendations during lockdown. We've now come full circle and I've invited them back, now that cinemas are gradually reopening, to talk about the films they're looking forward to seeing on returning to the cinema. Just to note that the release dates we're going to talk about are very movable feasts, so some of the films we're going to talk about may not appear until 2021. Um, David, we're going to rattle through some films here, but we're going to kick off with Les Miserables. This won the jury prize at Cannes four Cesar Awards and was Oscar nominated. It notably shares a title with the Victor Hugo book and a well-known musical, but I presume that's where the similarities end. Uh, yes, indeed. This, as you mentioned, back back when there were film festivals, I saw this back in Cannes last year, and this was one of those films that we were all ready to show. It was you know, booked, confirmed, and uh, re- ready to roll when when the lockdown occurred. So the distributor of this film had taken the taken the uh, decision to move the date rather than going online, which is what a lot of distributors did. They've moved the date, so hopefully we'll be showing this when we reopen, um, because this is a film that really needs to be seen in cinema. As you said, there is a connection with Victor Hugo, limited connection. It's set in the same area in eastern Paris, Montfermeil. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, where Victor Hugo's titular classic was set. And this is a day in the life of a trio of policemen. There's a, a young recruit, uh, Stefan, who's joined the area's anti-crime squad, and he's teamed up with two other hard-bitten cops who patrol the area. And it's one of those films where a series of events spirals out of control gradually, imperceptibly, until we're almost in a riot-style situation. It's very gripping. It's very, very tense. It crackles with energy. It's got a great sense of time and place. feels very current, given everything that's going on. And yeah, it's absolutely great. It's just, it's, it's a film that will absolutely needs to be seen in the big screen. So I'd be delighted to show that when it, when it rolls around again. It seems to have a, a slightly surreal element to it as well, as in we don't and we don't want to give too much away, but um, an animal escapes during the film. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's actually a lion cub. It's a theft of a lion cub, a, a young boy in this area. Um, as I said, it's it's a series of interconnected events. This lion cub sparks off a series of coincidences and consequences that all gradually ratchet up into this um, very heightened situation where, as I say, there's almost um, you know a, a, a riot is is instigated. Again, to say too much will be to give it away, but um, it's. It's beautifully done. It's beautifully orchestrated. Um, over it has reminiscent, in a sense, of, if listeners want to get a kind of a vibe of what the film's like of La Haine, films like that. Um, I'm sure that'll prick up the ears of many a, a cineast out there. Um, it's it's certainly I thought of that quality. So as you said, it's uh, hugely acclaimed, and Les Misérables is currently scheduled for release on September fourth. Kevin, I'm going to come to you now for a horror double bill. I'm kicking off with uh, the debut feature from Rose Glass, Saint Maud, uh, which looks like a very unsettling watch. It is, yes. Um, I mean, work continues on our Harathon Festival, of course. So with that in mind, it's just kind of looking to other titles that might be coming up in the genre. Um, yes, St. Maud, debut feature from Rose Glass. Morphid Clark plays a, a nurse with a troubling history um, that's never fully explained that has sent her into a, a, a state of piety. And now she works as a carer for Jennifer L's character. 
Maud has a, a strained relationship with reality and is determined to save her charge's soul. And it is a very unsettling film. The ending is a real gut punch. And it's, it's fascinating. Morphe Clark is brilliant in it. Jennifer L is unrecognisable. I didn't realise it was her until about halfway through. Yeah, it's, it's a strange, unsettling film. Um, and one definitely that marks out certainly Rose Glass as someone who could have a very interesting career. The, the trailer, and I know it's just, it, it's it's a marketing tool, but it flags that the film is from the studio that brought us The Witch and Midsummer and Hereditary. And I'm just wondering if you're to go to see the film based on those temple titles, would you be disappointed? No, I don't think so. I think The Witch is not a bad comparison. It it, it It's not an overt horror film. It's it's subtle and it's kind of a slow burner, again, like like those films you mentioned, that all kind of comes to a head. It's a it's a short film as well. It's only eighty six minutes. Mm. It's not like it's not like um, you know. I think Midsummer is two plus hours, and Hereditary is around that. So the kind of slow burn is not a chore. You know, it it gets where it's going, um, and it, it it doesn't take forever to get there. If you know what I mean, David, you're a fan as well. I, uh, very much so. Yeah, I saw this back in Toronto, and I completely agree with everything Kevin said. It's wonderfully brief i mean i think films are just way too long as kevin also mentioned there midsummer which there's a director's cut that rattles on for over three hours i mean it's entirely unnecessary this is 85 minutes i think kevin's exactly right it's a psychological drama almost more than a horror film although it certainly has one foot in the horror world and everything is seen from this very skewed perspective of this main character so you're never quite sure what's reality and, and what is part of, of her of her, her skewed perspective, this, this uh, religious hysteria that she has wrapped herself up into. And yeah, the ending will leave the audiences reeling from the theatre. Very good. Well, that's something to look forward to. St. Maud is currently scheduled for release on October 23rd. Kevin, coming back to you now for what might be perhaps a more conventional horror film. Candyman got some notice during lockdown with an amazing trailer that got released looking at kind of themes around the Black Lives Matter protest. But for those not in the know, what is the story of Candyman? Well, this is a remake of Bernard Rose's film from the early 90s. And it's it's essentially a, an urban legend story about this figure that appears if, if and when summoned and, you, you know, bad things ensue as a result, of course. The remake is from a black female filmmaker, Nia DaCosta. It's executive produced by Jordan Peele of Get Out and the recent Twilight Zone reboot. So it, it's going to be an interesting take, I think, on it. I mean, I don't think anyone's seen it yet beyond that, the initial trailer and so on. But as you said, it's it's timely and it's it's interesting. And, and there is a it's an interesting lineage of black horror films. So it, I think this, it, I'll be very curious to see how this one turns out and just how uh, it does fit into kind of the current um, social issues. The original, I think, was released in 1992. So it's close on 30 years old. How has it stood up? I mean, how is the original perceived well in the horror community? Were people looking for a remake of it? Or, you know, how is it standing? I don't think, I think when something is well regarded in the horror community, people would prefer they not remake it. But the original does have a following. It is quite well regarded. It's kind of one, I think, that's well regarded within the community. It doesn't seem to have kind of a broader reach outside of that, but it is well regarded amongst horror fans. Yeah, and as I said, I'm not sure anyone was necessarily looking for a remake, but I think, again, there are enough changes um, even just in terms of the talent involved that, that really kind of might set this apart and, and make it something original that, that doesn't, that isn't just a pointless retread of the original. 
I remember seeing the first Candyman in the cinema all those years ago and the thing that struck me immediately and it stayed with me and I still have it in my head is the incredible score by Philip Glass for the film, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but you have to check out. It's one of the best scores for a horror film I've ever heard. I think Philip Glass tells a story about how he was almost conned into that, that he didn't realise it was for a horror film until afterwards. It, but it really worked. It fits the film like a glove. and It's an extraordinary um, addition to the film that the atmosphere, I think, is really heightened by it. It's a kind of mesmeric organ score. Um, yeah, it's really terrific. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the original has a lot. Bernard Rose is director, Tony Todd, mm. Neil Madsen, Philip Glass. You know, there, there's a lot to recommend the original if people haven't seen it. Absolutely. And a great sense of time and place with it, Cabrini Green in Chicago um, is, is really uh, evocatively portrayed. Um, I thought the setting was was quite unusual and quite original and unique. Um, you know, it's it's usually, you know, woods and lakes mm-hmm. and places like that that um, slasher yeah. films are, are depicted in. But this was a very grimy urban setting that I thought was was quite original at the time. Yeah. Um, it's hard to know when Candyman is going to be released. I know Halloween Kills has moved uh, from its Halloween slot. So um, Candyman, I think, is mid-October still, but we'll have to uh, uh, keep an eye on our local press to see when that film is going to arrive. David, a bit of a 180 for our next choice. Um, we're going to Denmark and director Thomas Vinterberg reuniting with uh, villain for hire Mads Mikkelsen in your next pick. Uh, tell us about this one. Yeah, well, this is another one nobody has seen, so we can only we can only speculate. Um, this is uh, another round, or Druk in its original title, was hotly anticipated to be one of the Cannes competition titles. I think it is one of the Cannes label titles, as you know, Cannes have kind of uh, announced what would have played at the festival. So it will probably fetch up on the shores of some other festivals. Um, it has been acquired for UK distribution, UK and Irish distribution, so we will see it hopefully before the end of the year. It's an intriguing premise. It uh, concerns for some of school teachers, uh, Maz Mickelson um, being the leading actor, who undertake an experiment whereby they, they try to remain a level of inebriation for 24 hours, seven days a week. They try to remain slightly drunk all the time. They have this notion that they're at their best when they're one or two drinks in on the night, they're at their synapses are firing and their, you know, their, their, their personalities are at their most engaging. So they undertake this experiment to be just slightly drunk all the time. And there's a trailer and it looks like it plays for fast and loose and funny for, the, for a while before um, darker consequences of this rather outlandish behavior uh, experiment take over. But um, I think it's an intriguing premise. Last time we saw Maz Mikkelsen with Thomas Vinterberg was The Hunt, uh, which was one of the best films of that year, I thought, it was 2012-13. So um, I think this, is, this uh, looks very intriguing. I noticed that when I was looking, researching it a little bit myself, that it was classified as a drama, but it feels like it should be a comedy. I mean, that, as you say, it, it reads as though it plays fast and loose, but I wonder how dark it actually gets. It will get dark. <laughs> My instincts tell me that it's not going to end well. Uh, there are images in the trailer to, to suggest that, but I would imagine there, w- there, would, be, there would be laughs in there too. Um, it's just an intriguing premise. I'm, I'd be fascinated to see what uh, Vinterberg does with it. Um, he's a director who's a very checkered career he's made some films that are close to masterpieces such as Festin but also some absolute turkeys in my opinion so um, I thought The Hunt was definitely a return to form I think the drama about the Kursk disaster there last year that kind of came and went so I think this he's back with Maz Mikkelsen on a, with an intriguing premise uh, this could be this could be uh, something interesting Another round is currently scheduled for release on November 27th back closer to home Kevin for a little bit more uh, middle-aged ennui 
Rialto is a hugely moving film uh, directed by Pete Mackie Burns from a script by Marco Halloran with a terrific central performance by Tom Von Lawler. Tell us a little bit about this one. Firstly, you're right in everything you say. Uh, yes, Tom Von Lawler plays a, a middle-aged man who's, you know, seems to have a, a reasonably comfortable life. He's got a decent job and family and all the rest of it. But um, he enters into a relationship with a male prostitute um, just as his life is kind of taking a turn for the worse. And things become very complicated for him as he tries, redefines himself or rediscovers himself um, or, or almost, you know, makes a decision as to who he is. As we mentioned with St. Maud, which is a very short, economical 86 minutes, Rialto similarly, I think, clocks in around 89, but it packs a huge amount into that short running time. Yes, it does. Um, but it, it's really it, it, it's really just the story of that one man as he reasserts himself or redefines himself um, in relation to everything he was. His job in peril, he seems to have defined himself by his job in a large part. So once he loses that, he, he just becomes this tragic unmoored figure. And I think it's against that backdrop of, you know, someone finding themselves, you know, in middle age, having to find a new path. Uh, I think that's part of what kind of inspires his journey. Mm. And I think what's, and again, without spoiling anything, I think what's brilliant about the film is that it has very, Marco Halloran gives it a very ambiguous ending that it's nothing is really cut and dried, which is kind of, you could say the same thing about the whole film, really. Yeah. And I mean, there are, Parts of the film, there's a, there's one particular scene that's extremely harrowing to watch. Um, just as this man, you know, almost willfully self destructs some of the most important things in his life, and as you say, the the ending, then, yeah, it's very ambiguous yeah. as to where he'll go from there. One of the things that uh, I, I agree with everything that's been said, but one of the films that this film reminded me of, and it felt counterintuitive at the time, but. Um, I really think that it must have been one of the influences is Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris, where two characters meet for what is ostensibly a sexual relationship. But it's through that that this man, who, as Kevin said, has become lost and unmoored with the losing of his job, is striving for any kind of a connection. And he achieves some level of emotional connection through this dalliance with a young male prostitute. And they, they meet in a room and it's the same room and it's almost like this safe space for him to have an emotional connection with another human being. And I found that very, very moving. It just felt quite redolent of Last Tango in Paris at, at points. I'm not sure as if that was part of the, the film's intent, but um, there are definitely similarities there. It's a, it's a very moving, it's a very sad film, I think. Uh, Tom Bourne-Lawler invests a huge degree of sadness in his character. Yeah, and I thought Monica Dolan was really good as well as his wife. Yeah, indeed. The, the performances are, are unanimously very strong, very believable. I, I, I believed the, the characters' dilemmas and their, their sadness. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it is a very moving film. Rialto is due to hit our screens later in this year. Um, it already hit some screens, uh, recently screened as part of the Galway Film Flat, where our next film won Best Irish Film and Best Irish First Feature. And David, that's Philip Doherty's Redemption of a Rogue. Redemption of a Rogue, indeed. And as you say, the Galway Film Flat online, as it was, um, which is uh, the brave new world that we live in now. It was a Galway Film Festival online and seemed to go very well and hats off to them for that. Yeah, this is the, the big film that won everything from the flat. It's a very quirky, dark, eccentric comedy of sorts, <laughs> which follows uh, a man who's returning. He's, he's, a, he's a pariah in his local town in Cavan. He goes back home and 
is uh, completely unwelcome. He goes back home to essentially kill himself. And while he's there, his father, he finds his father is dying and his father dies. At the beginning of the film is not a spoiler, which kind of interrupts his plan to kill himself. In the father's will, it is written that he can only be buried on a day when it doesn't rain. And this being Cavan, such a day doesn't exist. So he enters into this Groundhog Day-like ritual of trying to bury the father, waiting for the rain to stop and trying anything to make the rain stop. It's willfully surreal at times. It's full of fantasy sequences, full of music. uses music in a way that is very similar to a lot of kind of Scandinavian comedy, particularly Woman at War, where there's almost like a live band following him at times. Very dark, very quirky, uh, ultimately redemptive, but uh, very winning. I thought this was very funny at times, intriguing. It wears its influences lightly, like there's you can kind of see the influences there from Aki Kurismaki, that style of kind of barroom surreal comedy, some Coen brothers, um, as I say, a lot of other Scandinavian things there. You could make a list as long as your arm of the influences, but it wears them lightly. It's not heavy handed. It's well done. Um, yeah, I think this, this will have a very receptive, or this should get a very receptive audience when, it, when it's released at, uh, at whatever date Stephen is going to tell me it's released. Later in the year. Yeah. <laughs> so this feels like it's going to be a real breakout role for Aaron Monaghan. Yes, indeed. He's this looming presence, um, you know, a taciturn man of almost no words who is on a mission to kill himself and is, as I say, derailed by the fact that he can't bury his father. He's his big hulking presence, but invests huge personality and character into the role and uh, is very commanding. It does a lot with very little. And that is uh, that level of understatement is to be welcomed. David, we're going to stick with you for this next one. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel uh, was one of the IFI's most successful recent releases. And Wes Anderson's latest one, The French Dispatch, sees him pull a lot of his ensemble back together again. Getting the old gang back together again. Yes, indeed. Uh, this is another one of those films that was hotly tipped for the Cannes Film Festival. Indeed, I wouldn't have been surprised had it opened the film festival, given, given the title and the nature of it, and has now been and has now had its release date changed to later in the year. So, and as you say, everything that Wes Anderson releases is enormously successful, certainly at the IFI, very, very popular. So before to this, again, it's another one of the films that we're talking about today that we don't know a heck of a lot about. It seems to be set in a fictional French town and concerns a US magazine. I'd probably call the French Dispatch, and I'm going to I'm going to stipulate, I'm going to postulate, and it seems to be kind of gathering various stories that are featured in the last edition of this magazine and um, and animating those stories, uh, I think. So, um, but as you say, the he's certainly got the old gang back together. I mean, just at a glance, the cast is pretty astonishing. We've got Benicio del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Leah Sadu. Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, Jeffrey Wright, Matthew Amalrich, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, and our very own Saoirse Ronan. And there's probably more there, but that's, as I say, the cast at a glance. So what's not to look forward to? And it's amazing when you look at the trailer, even if, you, if it didn't have a name and it didn't have a director's name, you know exactly who it's by. I think it's all of that uh, symmetrical, you know, perfectly symm- symmetrical shots. Uh, yeah, and probably yellow font, if I know Wes Anderson. The French Dispatch is currently scheduled for release on October 16th. In contrast to Wes Anderson, Kevin, uh, David Lowry is a bit of a chameleon. He's directed all sorts of films, uh, not lately, uh, Pete's Dragon, a children's film, as well as a ghost story. So um, an adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with Dev Patel. Why not? (laughs) 
what the world's been waiting for. Yeah, again, there's, there's not really very much to say about this, unfortunately, other than it has one of the most intriguing teaser trailers I've seen in a very long time, filled with startling imagery that just, I, I'm really, really excited to see this one. Um, in, in a way, I'm kind of haven't been about a film for a while. It, it just, just there's something about the the footage that has been released that just seems so unusual, so odd. And as you say, coming from a director that you never really know what he's going to do next, mm. I, I'm just really intrigued to see what exactly this is. Because yes, it may be um, posited as a, a retelling of a medieval legend, but I'm would expect that that's not the whole story. Because when you read, when I was read back the synopsis of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and it's one of those stories that's so embedded in its own narrative structures of that time that you kind of look and go, well, how are they going to make an exciting film out of this? But just looking at the trailer and the gothic vibes that just come streaming off it, it, it looks fantastic. Certainly a lot of surrealist imagery in there as well. And yeah, I, it's just going to be really, really fascinating to see what exactly this is. And as someone, as someone who had to read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in the original Old and Middle English, my first year English course, um, I'm immediately triggered by this. I'm not sure I can, I could possibly take it. Uh, they certainly look. It certainly seems that David Lowry has made something incredibly interesting and exciting out of a pretty interminable narrative. <laughs> um, all we've had for the next film are some teasers as well. But um, we recently screened David Lynch's version of Dune in 70mm, that was at the IFI last year. A heroic failure, I think, is how it's generally regarded, but it's Denis Villeneuve who's taking the reins this time around. Yeah, I think heroic failure is um, diplomatic. I change my opinion on David Lynch's Dune every time I see it. I, I do like the original novel. It's something I have revisited a couple of times over the years. I like Denis Villeneuve a lot. I think he's made some excellent films. So again, this is just another one. It's such a hard novel to film, as David Lynch discovered, and anyone who's familiar with Alejandro Jodorowsky's history with Dune, that fantastic documentary about that, the unmade version of it, um, it's just going to be really interesting to see how he, how he does, basically. I mean, again, this could be another heroic failure in, in the works. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Dune is currently scheduled for release on December 18th. David, back to you. By far one of the most eagerly awaited films of the year, or possibly 2021, is Christopher Nolan's Tenet. It takes some doing to release a three-minute trailer and still have no idea about what it's about. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you said, uh, or 2021, or 2022, or who knows. This is the great movable feast that has kind of bounced through the release calendars of late, currently scheduled for mid-August, so we wait and see. Um, yeah, this is... This is a new Christopher Nolan film, so it almost doesn't matter. I mean, there's going to be hordes of people who are just, uh, you know, salivating about this. The trailer is certainly intriguing and enticing. It seems to have something to do with quantum physics or some kind of, if it's not time travel, at least the manipulation of time in a big action James Bond-esque setting. So no doubt there'll be plenty of high-octane shootouts and you know, expensive special effects amid some um, head-scratching imagery a la Inception. And I think he does that thing, he does that sort of thing pretty well. So I am looking forward to this. For our last choice, I think head-scratching is also a word that could be applied to the re-release of Primer. Uh, we screened this at Dark Skies a couple of years ago, and I have to be honest, I was left with a puzzled look on my face. It feels like it's deliberately obtuse and obscure, Kevin. What's the story with this? 
I don't think that's fair. Um, I think Shane Carruth, whose film this is, um, has made very few films now. I think he's, is it three? I think it's just two, isn't it? Upstream Colour and Primer. Okay, Um, but his films are oblique. They're difficult, they're challenging. They're not, nothing is laid out, you know, just to spoon feed an audience. But I think they... They reward multiple reviewings and, and seeing Primer, I know when we did show it a couple of years ago, it was not easy to show Primer. So now that it's become available again, this is, a, this is really one of those films that, you know, it, it will reward a, a repeat viewing and to see it on the big screen again um, is just a great opportunity. The, the story essentially is about time travel. There's no point in me trying to explain it more than that because I'll just get confused. Um, <laughs> So it's it's an experience to see, and I, I I'm very much looking forward to seeing it again. Yeah, I've seen I've seen Primer a good few times, and the same thing happens to me every single time I watch it. I think I have it. I'm I'm 40 minutes in, and I think I have it. I'm following it, and all of a sudden I'm not following it. <laughs> and I you know it is it's it's one of those films that there's a there's a Primer guide you can actually download, and it is quite helpful. We could maybe look at giving that out to to viewers <laughs> as we enter the into the screen, indeed. Primer is currently scheduled for multiple watchings uh, from November 20th. Um, There's just so much to look forward to and we've really missed being in the cinema. Kevin and David, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And thanks so much to you for listening to the iFi podcast over the last 12 weeks and making it a top 10 arts podcast in Ireland. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. You can also now visit the iFi's video on demand platform at ifihome.ie. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon. The iFi Podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.